Hello, everybody. Please pray for me. My name is Troy, and I am an alcoholic and an addict. And I'd like to welcome you to Clean Dreams. Our aim here is to help anyone who is unable to uh, reach the local meetings or unable to get in contact with their sponsor or their network, unable to do the things that are necessary to stay clean and sober one day at a time. Tonight, I'm going to ask a friend of mine to share his experience, strength, and hope that he may be some symbol of, of, of recovery to the next sick and suffering person. But before we get started, I'd like to go ahead and give thanks and credit to Sean C. for being my executive producer here, and uh, he's been doing a hell of a job. Thank you, Sean. Let's go ahead and get started with a moment uh, of, of silent reflection as to why it is that we're here and invite he who presides over us all into this. God, please grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Once again, welcome to Clean Dreams. If you can, log on to our website at cleandreams.org or find us on YouTube. Uh, it would be our pleasure to be of some help to you or to your loved ones. Uh, we know that this journey in recovery is not an easy one, and none of us are here to say that it's going to be easy. We're here to say that it can be done. We stand as samples and examples as to how the 12 steps have made a difference in our lives. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Mr. Chris R. I love him dearly. He has been uh, an, an example of, of someone who came up the rough side of the mountain and has stood on top of the mountain now holding his hand out to help others to achieve what is possible through the 12 steps. So I give you Chris R. Thanks, Troy. I'm Chris. I'm a heroin addict. Hey, Chris. Um, now, when I say that, you know, what's cool about this and what we're actually doing is, you know, there's so many different people that we can reach, so many different ways to reach them and actually to reach out and touch people and vice versa. And, you know, one of the things is I say I'm a heroin addict, but, you know, there's almost a little bit of resistance even when I say that. And the reason why I say that is, you know, because I was something else before I was a heroin addict. I identified as something else before. I'll give you a little bit of background. You know, I ended up, um, really I ended up growing, in the, growing up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, stuff like that. My dad has 31 years sober now, and he's been sober since I was three years old, so pretty much as long as I remember, you know. And I was just one of those kids, me and my sister, we'd run around in meetings and distract the shit out of everyone. <laughs> and, um, you know, but at the same time, I started actually getting mandated to meetings at 14 years old, you know. So, I mean, even at a young age, so I kind of had you know, a lot of, I guess, access to the rooms and stuff like that. And really I spent, you know, my whole life 
trying not to be in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, and yet here I am. I've spent my whole life in the rooms one way or another. Um, but that being said, you know, I didn't start off as a heroin addict. You know, and I'll kind of get into a little bit of this, but, you know, really I started drinking at 11 years old and, you know, that escalated and I was, you know, smoking weed 12, dropping acid at 13, doing cocaine at 14, you know, and it was just kind of right off the rip, you know, something was a little bit different and kind of, you know, I'll go back. So when I was a child, when, you know, ages four and five years old, you know, I can't tell you the exact length of time, but it was definitely a while I was the victim of sexual abuse. And, you know, I didn't quite understand it or anything like that. And one of the things that happened is a little bit later in life, around 10 and 11 years old, I started really having these vivid dreams of it. And really, you know, my perspective, you know, really on life changed dramatically and it became this thing where I started to develop this self-hatred for of course myself but you know also everyone else around me and I didn't want to be in the world I didn't feel I fit in the world I didn't want to be a part you know really of the human race or anything like that and you know to actually have to get drug into school and stuff like I mean it was just awful and, and I wanted no part of it by any means you know and I think a lot of times you know, we think about what the drugs and alcohol do to us, but I think really what's important is what drugs and alcohol did for us. And for me, you know, when I started drinking, I started getting high, you know, I found freedom. That's initially what the drugs and alcohol did. You know, they gave me freedom. I was able to be a part of the world. I was able to be part of, you know, social situations, be a part, you know, and actually be with people with some sort of ease and comfort. And that's really what it did for. And, and that has such a profound impact, you know? And so around the age of 14, you know, I kept getting in trouble, kept getting in trouble at school, really was getting in a lot of trouble around the neighborhood with my parents. I uh, got arrested, you know, three times at 14, one truancy, another was underage drinking, Another one was assaulting a federal employee and, you know, these things happen and, you know, I kept having, so the book talks about, um, frothy emotional pill seldom suffices and, you know, I got more than my share from parents, neighbors, friends, you know, other sorts of family members. I even had a judge pretty much give me frothy emotional pill and pretty much beg me to just shape up and, but how can you tell someone who can't be in society, can't be in this world without drugs and alcohol, that it's bad for them? And so that was my mindset, and I didn't want to admit it, but I knew that there was there was such freedom that came from it and stuff like that. But all these people were telling me it was bad, and I was a drug addict and stuff like that. And so I would start running away because you're talking about taking my only solution to being a part of this world completely away and you know there was times and there was stuff that I would do and you know I would cross my own moral and ethical lines and you know there'd be this part where okay well I'm gonna chill out or you know I'm gonna stop and you know it never happened you know that's one of those things you wake up um you know the next day and 
you feel completely different about it and stuff like that. And just the reality of, oh, God, I got to be in this world yet again. I got to be around people, you know, that completely shifts. And it's like, I, I, I can't do this. I don't go back through it. And so, you know, that's what it did for me. And that's what it did for me, you know, right, right off the rip from a young age and stuff like that. And it's, so that's what I'm going to do. And so I ended up chasing it. And at the same time, you know, there's the belief that I'm only harming myself you know, and just can't see how, you know, the ripples, you know, you throw a stone into a lake, there's a ripple effect, it ripples out, you know, couldn't really see all that. And so I ended up uh, starting to do heroin at 17 years old. At that point, you know, there really wasn't anyone my age or anything like that doing it. And so I was just hanging out with a bunch of older guys and, you know, I, of course, still had some friends, you know, who were my age, and it was kind of just leading the double life, and what ends up happening is these older guys, they end up kind of teaching me the game and stuff like that, and, you know, we just go from there, and, of course, my life is a complete mess. It always had been at that point. You know, I could get jobs, you know, never really could keep them or anything like that, and, you know, so moving forward, end up um, at treatment for the first time, you know, just turned 22 years old and, you know, everything kind of came to a head before that. I ended up in like three weeks time, ended up still in like seven grand from my parents and stuff. And what ended up happening is, you know, I was so relieved <laughs> when they finally called me and they really let me have it. But, but the game was up at that point and, you know, there, there was this part of me that always thought that when I got caught, I would, you know, just kind of be demoralized or sad. Or I just remember this just overwhelming sense of relief that happened um, because finally, they finally knew. And there were some times where, you know, I wanted to quit and stuff like that. And everything in me said, tell someone, just tell someone. And for whatever reason, I absolutely could not do that. And, you know, so I ended up getting that relief and then I was just kind of like, you know, I was already homeless at that point, you know, and it's kind of like, well, I'm just going to be homeless, you know, and, you know, but at least, at least the, the game's finally up and stuff. And then, um, you know, they offered to take me to treatment and, you know, what ended up happening is I, I ended up going to treatment. I ended up doing some work in the 12 steps, um, nothing too crazy or anything like that. And, you know, the only reason why I bring this up is I ended up staying sober for about six years, maybe just shy of that. It's kind of hazy. Um, but three years in, you know, I stopped going to meetings. I stopped doing any kind of work. I stopped sponsoring guys. You know, I stopped doing all these things that, um, you know, old timers had been in my head for years and, you know, and then there was this piece where I still stayed sober for a long period of time. Um, and, and, and I think that's important to mention because we don't always know what this looks like. You know, I can pretty much say, you know, if you suffer from what I suffer from, you know, you cease doing these things, it will come back. It will bite you. You know, I can guarantee that I can't tell you the time frame. You know, I see this happen all the time. I got other experiences where it's real short 
and that experience was real long and I get to see that with other people and stuff like that. And, you know, there almost becomes this belief that, you know, I'm doing it myself, which is a scary, terrifying place for a guy like me to be. And I'll kind of, you know, and, and only share this, not any kind of brag or anything like that, but really this is the reality. And we see this, you know, with people who are, Newly recovered, um, you of course see this with young people a lot, but you'll see this with the older guys and gals too. But you know what? What I ended up doing was, you know, I just threw myself into work, and I was just trying to do that stuff. And, and really, the only thing I was doing at that point was chasing tail, and I was still praying. And you know what ends up happening is, you know, I, I thought I was being completely honest, open and upfront with these girls. And it was a thing of, you know, I was telling them I didn't want to be in a relationship. And they were like, you know, okay. And so I think I'm doing the honest thing here. And, and I did this for a while. I and mean, I don't remember who it was, but they uh, completely screwed me because <laughs> they posed the question, well, what if you're actually causing harm to these women still? And, and, you know, what my experiences show is grace lasts as long as ignorance and they strip me of that ignorance. And so what ends up happening is, you know, the last thing that I'm doing is I'm at least sober and I'm still trying to build a relationship with God. But then when it comes down to it, you know, me chasing women or, you know, not doing so, I mean, when it, when it comes down to it, I was like, how can I pray? You know, how can I ask to be, you know, a vessel for God and be used by God and then do whatever self-centered shit I want to do. And so, you know, but I wasn't going to stop chasing tail. And so what, what ends up happening is I stopped praying on those days, you know, knew I was going to do it, knew it was kind of wrong to ask God to do that stuff, yada, yada, yada. And so, you know, the last thing, the last thing that was holding on, that's out the window at this point. And it was only a matter of time. And, you know, you hear people talk about the obsession. And, of course, you know, that, that kind of shows up a couple different ways. Um, sometimes it's the screaming in the head. There is no option. This has to be done. And I think the other way that the big book describes it, and you know, is suddenly, you know, and, and that's just the way it is. Suddenly this thought and, you know, we can't act actually use that thought in the first place and you know kind of and I'll share this now my experiences is when I do you know as directed and what's directed in the big book I stay sober when I go outside of that I don't and the only reason why I bring that up is you know at meetings you will hear a lot of things that don't jive with what the big book says and by no means am I hating on anyone or anything for that, but my experience, and I would say if you are a type four and you suffer from what I suffer from, you're just not going to stay sober that way. And, and the only reason why I bring that up is you hear people speak about, um, think your way through the drink, stuff like that. And, you know, big book tells us very clearly at certain times we're unable to recall with sufficient force suffering and humiliation of a weekend or month ago. So the problem with that is, is, I don't know what these certain times are, so how am I going to think my way through this in the first place? You know, and that's really where this suddenly comes into play and the obsession looks a different way. And I bring that up to bring this up. You know, I was at work one day 
And a buddy of mine who I worked with just happened to say, hey, do you want a Vicodin? You know, there was no thought. There was no memory of the suffering and humiliation of a week or month or six years, ten years, however long ago. It didn't enter my mind. There wasn't even a thought of maybe this is a bad idea. This was literally a question. And sure. And, you know, what ends up happening is hands be Vicodin. I take it. There's still no thought. There's still no thought that this is a bad idea or what are you doing or what about all the, you know, time you had. And what ends up happening is I go about my business. I continue working. And I remember, you know, it was hit me like a shotgun. All of a sudden, you know, the feeling just rushes through my body. And there is, you know, once again, what are you doing? Why would you do that? You know, there was no thought about the five or six years or anything like that. Literally, as soon as this hits me, the first thing, you know, that pops in my brain is, oh, God, when is this going to stop? You know, and, and I remember that very vividly, you know. Well, I should say I remember that vividly when I think about it. That's not going to be enough to keep me from picking up. But, you know, and, and that was my reality and that was my truth, you know, because I didn't stop for, it was, it was a couple of years at that point. And it just became a thing of, you know, and this is where I started to try to control and try to manage. I knew I was licked already. And so then it's the thing of I'm just trying to stay on the pills. I don't want to go back to the heroin. Don't want to go back to shooting dope or anything like that. You know, and what ends up happening is I get led back to the heroin, get led back to shooting dope, which is precisely what I was trying not to do. And, you know, that that's because I have, you know, a belief or at least even a hope that there would be some level of control, you know, and there's all kind of delusions that go with that. Well, maybe it's because I'm older, maybe because all this time elapsed and, you know, stuff like that. But the truth is, is, you know, this is a progressive illness and things did not get better. And, you know, it ends up being a thing of, you know, I'm off to the races and, you know, I'm literally going to shoot dope into something physically arrests me and separates me. You know, and, and I got a lot of experience with that. And I got a lot of experience of literally having to be physically separated to even make a beginning. You know, and once again, we're back in a situation. I remember, so my now wife, and she was my girlfriend then, you know, she was my running buddy. She was my ride or die. And, you know, thank God for her. Me and her together made a great team. We make shit happen. <laughs> and, um, but we both had this fantasy and, and this fantasy really is, um, you know, if we can just get off the dope, life is going to be great. And we 100% believed it. And, and it's just because, you know, going back to what I said a little bit earlier, you know, we like to think what drugs and alcohol did to us, not for us. And, and the way that it's looking like, it's looking like all these problems we're having. And it's because of the dopes, because of the dopes, because of the dopes. So if we just get off of it, you know, everything's going to be great. And so we would keep having these, um, we would try to can't go through withdrawals, get through the sickness and stuff like that. And just because we just knew that everything was going to be great. And, you know, so we would try that and, you know, sometimes maybe we'd make it a day or two, you know, at best and then be right back at it. And, 
you know, I, I bring that up just because when, when we finally stopped, you know, what my experience is, and I think this is very important is, you know, things don't get better when you remove the dope from me, things get worse. And I'm left there, you know, even more demoralized, you know, and, and I can't figure out why is everything worse? You know, I just knew, you know, with everything I had in me that things were going to get better. And once again, it goes back to, it's not about what the drugs did to me. It's what they do for me, you know, and it's right back to that way of living of, you know, how am I supposed to survive in your world? How am I supposed to get up and go to work? How am I supposed to look people in the eye? How am I supposed to do any of this without the drugs and the alcohol? And that's really where shit gets important for a guy like me. That's really what I suffer from. You know, granted, yes, do I have the phenomenon craving the allergy? Absolutely, I do. And I got a bunch of experiences with that. And, well, you know, and I, I can look at that and that, you know, sure, that looks a little bit different drug to drug. But, you know, at the same time, do I have the obsession? I absolutely do. And, you know, do I have the spiritual malady? You bet your ass I do. Um, and, and that's always what kind of shows up. And, you know, one of the things that I love doing nowadays is, is sponsoring, really getting to talk to guys and, you know, really getting to hear their experiences and just be, you know, a witness to their journey. And one of the things I usually like to ask them is, you know, okay, what does powerless look like to you? And, you know, they'll, and it's a little bit different case by case, but, you know, usually, oh, it's getting evicted because I can't pay my rent. Oh, it's the car getting repoed. Oh, it's her leaving me, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I say, okay, well, what exactly does the, um, what does unmanageability look like for you and stuff like that? And, you know, they tend to say something along the lines of, well, there I am, you know, unable to pass my drug test for probation. You know, I'm getting locked up, you know, okay. I don't have a car. I don't have a place to live and stuff like that. And it's always, you know, kind of at that point where, you know, yeah, that's, that is unmanageable, but, <laughs> Um, that's just examples of powerlessness too, you know, and then they're always kind of confused by this and I'll bring this up and, you know, I probably will read some stuff here and there as I do this, but you know, on page 52 in the big book, you know, we had asked ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems, the same readiness of change or point of view. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. You know, and those are the bedevilments. And the reason why that's important is that is the unmanageability. And that unmanageability absolutely happens, you know, stark raving sober. You know, but at the same time, you know, that's what happens, you know, when I'm using. That's what happens when you remove the drugs and the alcohol away. And, you know, that goes right back into how am I supposed to survive in your world? How am I supposed to, you know, socially be around people or even have conversations with people? It dives right back into this. This is what, you know, that's the way the spiritual malady manifests. And, you know, and the reason why that's so important is, you know, it talks about when we take care of the spiritual malady, we strain out mentally and physically. So mentally, the obsession, physically, you know, phenomenon of craving, 
Um, so, you know, by all means, I'm not going to be sober, remain sober, or stay sober if I do not take care of this spiritual malady. I do not have a snowball's chance in hell, you know, and, and that's the stuff we forget, but we tend to just look at it, you know, once again, what the drugs and the alcohol do to us. And, you know, I got plenty of experience of just being absolutely mangled, just being homeless, starving, you know, nothing else to do. No one will talk to me. No one wants to be around me, which is fine because I don't want to be around them either, you know, and it's never enough to keep me stopped. You know, it's, it might get the mind thinking of maybe I should do something different or try something, but that's as far as it goes every time. And I'm not saying that that stuff isn't important because we got to have something to get us to at least try in the first place. Um, but I bring all that stuff up because, you know, what happens is, you know, and I'll kind of share a little bit on the Al-Anon side of things, too, because I think that's important because I got some real gifts in my life that were kind of really fucked up. But, you know, really got me to to look differently about what we actually do to our loved ones and other people who just happen to be around us. And, um you know, so me and Kelsey, we were together a while for about three years. And I kind of mentioned about something has to physically separate me. Well, what ends up happening is, you know, this last time it came in the form of a judge. You know, I ended up uh, overdosing at work. And then um, actually the police officers who responded, I actually kind of knew just from working and stuff like that. And they were trying to do me a favor and they just gave me a city ordinance instead of actually, you know, any kind of paraphernalia charges or anything like that. And so I'm thinking I'm just going to have to pay this ticket, but I got to go in front of a Roswell judge and, you know, they're asking me, can I pass a drug test? And I'm like, just sitting there like, I just no, 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 no one passes a drug test, like coming to, court or first time in probation so i was like no and uh so he's i I think it kind of made sense to him which was probably strange but i'm sure he's probably heard that a bunch and so he's like all right i'm gonna give you a continuance so but you better be able to pass drug tests so okay i appreciate that you know and then three weeks later and i'm trying everything to be able to pass this drug test you know trying to kick dope and stuff like that you know different judge can you pass this drug test no, sir. And he lays into me, you know, for a good 10 minutes. And then Kelsey's back there crying. And he's like, look what you're doing to this poor girl. And I'm thinking, she's more fucked up than me. What are you doing? Um, yeah, but he gives me a continuance. And then, um, you know, so so there we are three weeks later. Can you pass a drug test? You know, I, I learned a little bit. And so I said, Maybe. You know, well, I wasn't going to tell him no again. And uh, so, I mean, at that point, he was kind of like, well, you can go to treatment or the max amount of time I can give you and I will do that will be six months. And so, you know, like anyone would do, but I just do treatment. Treatment it is. You know, and so I physically got separated and placed in the treatment from there. And it, it, by all means, is what I needed to happen. And... Yeah, I remember going into it. I remember kind of 
you know, not knowing what was ahead of me, even though I had all this experience with meetings and recovery and stuff like that, you know, just not even a clue what was going to happen, what my life was going to look like. But I did make a promise to Kelsey and I was like, look, you know, I promise you I'm going to come back the best Chris I can be. You know, fortunately, that didn't mean I had to come back all that much better. <laughs> so, <laughs> Just the best. <laughs> you know, so I ended up um, going to a 12-step immersion program, which I'm very grateful that I did. And, you know, so so what was going to happen was, you know, she was going to get sober too when I was in treatment. But, you know, she needed to wait a week. We had to save up some money, you know, to be able to pay the bills, stuff like that. And, you know, and, and by all means, it was actually somewhat a reasonable and logical plan. But reason and logic means nothing when it comes to this. And so what ends up happening is we end up, you know, so I end up going there. I'm doing all that stuff. And then, you know, week goes by. She's not getting sober. I'm well aware, but I'm wanting to just, for the love of God, just believe her and stuff like that. But there's just a sickness about it. So after about two months, it's... uh christmas time so they're letting us actually go home for christmas eve and christmas day so we come back so i come back from alabama and you know so at this point you know what ends up happening is we still got the apartment you know still got my car you know we have some money it end up you know we end up with like 10 grand in cash i'm not gonna get into how or anything like that uh but life was kind of set up good. And I was kind of laughing, you know, making jokes when I was at treatment because, you know, this was the first time I'd ever gone or even attempted where life just wasn't completely burned to the ground and me left with nothing. I still got, you know, kind of laugh about it. And yeah, I just didn't know the shit was in the mail at that point. And um, so, you know, we do Christmas Eve, Christmas, and then it's this whole thing of, you know, I don't know why we thought it'd be a good idea to tell my parents while she's dope sick over at my parents' house about how we're engaged and stuff like that. And that didn't go over well and they were pissed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so go back or whatever, you know, so I'm there for another month and I end up getting through, uh, end up first journey through the steps this time, you know, before I leave and I'm so grateful that ended up happening. I'll get into why in a few minutes. But, you know, so what ends up happening is a month later, she's coming to pick me up. And, you know, I look at her right when she gets there. I was like, what's wrong? You know, and so at this point, I got this really good plan. You know, I'm going to come back. I'm going to get immersed into meetings. I'm going to get a sponsor. You know, I'm going to do all this stuff, you know. We got a little bit of money saved up, so I don't have to worry about much. You know, I can really focus on this and then, you know, slowly worry about the job and stuff like that. And by all means, it was an excellent plan. And so what ends up happening is I'm putting my stuff in the trunk of my car and she's like, well, we got to talk. You know, so I'm like, OK, it was like, well, we're getting eviction notices on the apartment you know, getting repossession notices about your car and we got $43. And so then naturally $20 got to go in the gas tank to get us home. And so I'm sitting there like, fuck, you know, and at this point I'm, I'm, I'm livid, 
you know, but I'm not saying anything to her or anything like that, you know, because, you know, once again, I'm more concerned about my plans and stuff and <coughs> excuse me. What ends up happening is, you know, we're driving home and it's probably about two and a half, three hour drive and around an hour and a half, two hour mark or whatever. And I, I haven't even said a word to her or anything like that. I, I just, I don't know. I guess a little bit of truth or a little bit of reality starts to set in. And I just remember I just start laughing at the whole situation just because it was so bizarre, but it was so on par for course. You know, it's what should have been happening in the first place before I even got there. And at the same time, it's like if roles would have been reversed, same exact scenario, same exact situation would have happened. You know, nothing would have been different. Just the person would have been different, you know. And, you know, there I am. You know, I was safe. I was safe only because I was locked away in a different state. She was left to her own devices. It's like, man, I get that. You know, and, and at the same time, though, you know, I just had this feeling that I didn't know how or anything like that, but things were going to be all right. Um, you know, and I went from being livid to a sense of peace that came, you know, and when you really sit there and you hear the night step promises, you know, and talks about, you know, you will know serenity or you will comprehend word serenity and you will know peace. I mean, that doesn't mean that my life's going to be serene. That doesn't mean my life's going to be peaceful. That means I'm going to have experiences with that. And even though everything was falling out, you know, I had experience like that. And, you know, so end up um, getting back on this side of town. Um, you know, one of the first things I do when I get back is go to a meeting. I end up just talk to some people and they're just like, oh shit. <laughs> um, so when, when we get back, you know, and, and she really was trying to get off the dope and stuff like that, but there's just, you know, spoons, needles, cottons, you know, little semi-empty bags. I mean, you know, when, when I really look at, you know, what the steps did for me and definitely I had to, you know, do a lot more thorough of a job with them, but they did its job. You know, when, when they talk about intense step promises, you know, you will seldom be interested if tempted recoil as if from a hot flame, you know, talks about being in a state of neutrality, safe and protected. You know, that was my experience for whatever reason. You know, I had everything I needed for a relapse. And the truth is, if I wasn't safe and protected, that's precisely what would have happened, you know. And what, what, what ended up happening was, you know, I spent the next two days just pawning everything else we had. I was uh, more than happy to, to sell that engagement ring at that point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're, you know, and, and it was just about how can I get her into treatment? And, you know, none of that shit was about me. It wasn't about this, what am I going to do? You know, poor me. It's what am I going to do for her? And, you know, even though my whole life, you know, in just an instant collapsed and everything that was going around it and we're about to get evicted, I'm about to get my car repossessed, I have no money, you know, and I'm selling everything we got that's worth value anyways to pay a deductible, you know, two easiest days of sobriety I ever had because the shit wasn't about me. And, and I think that was a valuable lesson that happened. And so 
the next day after you know I got back and ended up meeting Troy at a meeting. Um, you know, got him as temporary sponsor and you know was going through with all this stuff and kind of had a lot going on and you know I made sure you know at that point that you know what I was doing was a everything I could do you know not just for myself but for her and at the same time you know I started seeking out sponsees uh I mean you know I'm someone who started sponsoring it three months over and you know the way that looks is I'm supposed to get someone connected with God do you know who I, how the hell am I supposed to do that and and it's absolutely terrifying, but you know, that's, that's what it's about. You know, it's about what I'm willing to do for other people and stuff like that. And, you know, by no means would I say I was sane or solid at this point in my life. I just happened to be doing a few sane and solid things. That's the only thing I can think of how that works. And, you know, so I bring that up and I think this is kind of one of the most important things. And for years, I absolutely missed this or I didn't fully understand. And we hear, you know, kind of a lot about the third step and the third step decision. And what ends up happening is, you know, I really start to see it as this thing of I'm going to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And with what they're talking about, they are talking about that. But, you know, I, I hear a lot, you know, about turn my will over. I take it back, turn my will over. I took it back. And, you know, when, when you sit here and you read what it's talking about, you know, with the third step decision, which turned to the wrong page. Um, so this is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided, so decided, here's the decision, that hereafter in this drama life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father, and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was a keystone of a new triumphant arch through which freedom passed. And when I really look at that, and I think, you know, I look at this, I look at this third step decision as being an agent for God. You know, so he is the principal, we are his agents. And if you look at the definition of agent, it's someone who works on behalf of, for someone else. You know, and that's just it. That's the decision. Am I going to decide to work on behalf of God and help his children? And I keep it that simple, you know, kind of every day that that's my third step decision. That's what I do. And, you know, I do believe that God, you know, put these experiences in my life and especially the one with Kelsey. So it is a thing of, you know, I get to see what that third step decision. I get to see how even though life is completely falling around me, you know, yet it's the easiest days I have. Um, how much time I got? You got another 20 minutes. Okay. Good. Can't really read that from here. Um, so moving along. So it becomes um, paramount and, you know, and this is going to go more into the Al-Anon part of it. But what ends up happening is, you know, she ends up, thank you, going to treatment or whatever. And then she ends up in Daytona, Florida and, you know, doing more treatment, you know, sober living out there and stuff. And I'm just sitting here, you know, at this point I'm working, you know, got a decent job and everything seems to be doing good. I'm working 
you know, with a few guys sponsoring them. And what ends up happening is she ends up relapsing, you know, and she ends up being homeless there and she's just going to shoot dope. And, you know, I just developed this belief that, and, and I think you see this kind of a lot in the rooms and I don't think it's a far-fetched belief system to come up with. But my belief was in order for me to be all right, she had to be all right. And my relationship had to be all right, you know, and nothing was going to be all right until she was all right. And, you know, what, what I ended up finding for that was a, I was absolutely powerless of the situation. Um, there was nothing I could do about it or anything like that, but I truly suffered behind that belief. You know, I was still doing the things that I was taught to do. But yet I was in an immense amount of pain and kind of, yeah, I'm sitting there and I'm not an emotional guy really whatsoever, you know, but I remember being at work and, you know, I was at a lumber yard just working with a bunch of real rough guys and, you know, I was just building a bunch of trussles and stuff like that. I had to keep, you know, and, and I was just absolutely consumed about what was going to happen to her. She's going to die you know, I can't do anything about it. And, you know, what ends up happening is I get completely blocked off from the sunlight. You know, there is no relationship with God or anything like that. I'm just consumed with this. I got to keep going behind this dumpster every 10, 15 minutes to let out a few tears and, you know, just in a bad, bad spot. And so what ends up happening is, you know, fine. I mean, this went on for, I don't know, maybe a month or something like that. And shit was getting real bad. And, and I've heard, had heard people talk before about, you know, being able to be in more painful situations sober, you know, than out there using. And, you know, I never thought they were lying or anything like that. I just didn't understand it and just didn't get it. And, you know, I finally had an experience kind of with that. And, you know, I always kind of feel bad talking about this and even saying this, but, you know, I did not find any peace or serenity into finally, you know, the idea, and I was very resistant to this, but finally, you know, what ended up happening was there became this piece of me that just hoped and wished that she would die because then I could be free of this. I could be free from her. And, you know, it seemed like such a fucked up, thing and such a fucked up thing to even tell another person and stuff. But what ended up happening was there was this immense freedom that absolutely came from that. You know, everything about me was saying that this was wrong, but you know, what ended up happening was I started to get a feeling that the truth is that I was always okay, that I was all right, no matter what, you know, and it was just this belief system that I couldn't be all right with her without her. You know, and at the same time, we were still left in the same situation. I still didn't want anything to happen with her or anything like that, but I got free of it. You know, I was able to get reconnected with God, you know, because the truth is, is I've always been all right. doesn't matter what happened or anything like that. I only have the belief that I'm not all right. You know, and, and when I look at that, you know, I kind of mentioned about some sexual abuse earlier. So when I was 22, um, ended up doing inventory you know, it was this other, another aha moment that kind of happened. I wrote out inventory on it and, you know, what came from that was, you know, that shit 
stopped happening, you know, 15, 17 years ago, you know, but it was me who was reliving it every single day. You know, there could be no freedom. There could be no peace, you know, and it's one of those things where, you know, like, a, like I mentioned earlier, grace lasts as long as ignorance. And, you know, sometimes we get these little truths that come out and it just completely revolutionizes, you know, the way we look at things, the way we actually experience the world. And, you know, it's when things that happen in this, you know, so going back to, you know, it's not what alcohol and drugs do to us. It's what it does for us, you know, and these things start to happen like that. You know, and then you really start to see clarity in a new solution, a new solution that absolutely can happen. And so that's what we're up against, and that's what we, you know, really strive for. And some of these experiences happen, you know, just from, you know, bearing witness to another person's experience, whether that's, you know, through sponsorship or that's just someone who's, you know, part of your network and stuff like that. I mean, you really get to develop these connections with people and, that's something I missed out on my whole life. And one of the things that I learned is the more I can connect with people, the more I connect with God, the more I can connect with God, the more I connect with other people. And, you know, that's one of those things that I never thought, you know, that I would be able to understand or actually experience. And, you know, we start to have all these experiences with people and things and, you know, there, there's nothing cooler than to be working with a guy or just have a friend, you know, newly sober and stuff like that. And you just see kind of their eyes light up. You get to watch them literally catch fire, you know, and you'll hear people in meetings sometimes talk about, you know, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And, you know, the truth is, is when I'm in a meeting, I'm exactly where I'm not supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be sober. I ain't supposed to be sober for a day, you know, let alone any amounts of time or anything like that. Um, that's just not how I am. And, you know, this isn't my power. This is, has never been my power. You know, this is power that I get to tap into. This is God's power. And that's, you know, the way it is. I know there's, there's a good amount of people who actually have problems with, you know, God and stuff like that. And, and kind of one of the things that, you know, I learned is whenever I got a sponsee or anything like that, or whenever I meet someone who has a problem, you know, with a second or a third step, you know, it's always a first step problem. There's always another option. You know, the book talks about when we're left with, you know, two options, one to go to the bitter end, you know, and the, the other to accept spiritual help, you know, if I, if, and, and my experience is every time that I got a third option, whether that's, you know, go to treatment, get the job, if I just make more money back, you know, if I get the family back, you know, and, and I'll do some stuff and then look at the world as very externally. And, you know, how much time do we spend actually trying to make our life externally look good? You know, all would be well if only I managed well. And but, you know. I would spend time where I'd be sober, trying to get sober, and, you know, I would do good. I would get these jobs. I would do all these different things with that. I would get her back. I would get the family back. I'd get the car back. and But I'd be dying inside, and, and I just couldn't understand it, and I couldn't just grasp it. And, you know, it goes right back to um, we take care of spiritual malady, we strain out mentally and physically. And, you know, finally what I, what I was taught was, 
you know, when we take care of this internal condition, it resonates externally to these things. You know, at that point, it's a completely different feeling. It's because it's a completely different thing. And, you know, so even now today, when I look at that, and so, yeah, I brought up the stuff with my wife. And one of the main reasons is, you know, I, I had gotten to make a set of amends to my parents, you know, but because I had those experiences, I had those beliefs that life wasn't going to be all right until this happened. You know, I got a completely different light got shined onto it. And, and I was able to have a completely different understanding of the stuff I put my parents, you know, my sister, my loved ones to. I always thought that I understood that, you know, I was definitely causing them harm and stuff like that. I didn't understand to what, what degree. And I also didn't understand until that experience that, you know, heroin did more harm to me by proxy via someone else than it ever did me taking into my body. And that was an experience I would have never thought would have happened. And I would have never thought that that, that was the truth until I had that experience. And so I got to make this other set of amends to them, you know, with a completely different understanding. I think that's important to really be able to look at um, because you know, so much time we spend just not knowing what we truly do. And it really goes back to that, you know, ripple effect, throw a stone in the pond the way that it ripples out. And, you know, it certainly does that with negativity and then bad stuff we do, it ripples out to these other people, you know, and it affects people that we don't even think it's going to affect. Well, at the same time, you can flip that around. And, you know, when we, you know, when we help people, it ripples out to other people that we don't even know that it's rippling out to and it's affecting these other people we don't even know. You know, we think we're just, you know, sitting there being there for another man. But the truth is we're being there for, you know, his family, his parents, his wife, his children, stuff like that. And that's the beautiful thing that happens, you know, and that's the stuff that's truly important. When we sit there and we get to look at all this stuff, you know, what am I doing for other people? that's really what it comes down to. So I, I guess one of the biggest things I ever learned was, you know, this isn't about me. This is about other people. And when I really sit there and it's like, man, and, and I tell the sponsors all the time and I need to be reminded of this all the time. This, this, this shit ain't about how other people treat me. This is about how I treat other people. And, uh, man, I'd love to tell you I do stuff perfect and I do that perfect and, you know, I can get bent out of shape. But, you know, there's something that just grounds me with that when I when I can finally remember that, you know, this is about how I show up in this world. This, you know, because I spent my whole life, it's about how other people, you know, they did me wrong or, you know, this isn't my fault. I'm not going to take any responsibility. You know, this is bullshit, and, you know, and, and the truth is, is it's always been my responsibility and that's, when you, when you go through the big book and you really read through the stuff, I mean, that's all the stuff that it's telling us. It's telling us we're responsible for our life. We do not have the power to stay sober, right? But we do have responsibility in our life and what happens in our life, you know? And so going back to kind of, I shared a little bit about the third step um, decision, you know? And so going back to 
we like to look at, and this is because the shorthand version that we see in the walls, really comes back to turn my life over, took it back, turn my life over, took it back. You know, when you really get into the stuff that's in this, in the 11th step, you know, really what it tells us is we get to align our will with God's will. That's the proper use of the will. You know, there is no giving over, taking it back. It's, you know, it goes right back to there's a decision to be an agent for God on behalf of his children. And then there's the actual action to doing that. And that's what it's talking about in the 11th step. And there's just, you know, so much that goes into this and there's so much stuff we can do. So many, you know, another thing talks about in 11th step is be quick to see where religious people are right. Make use of what they have to offer. Um, and when I sit there, man, there's so many books, there's so many different things and avenues to look at and it's all conducive with everything that happens. And, you know, it's been this wild life. I'll kind of close up with, um, what life looks like now. Um, you know, so currently, you know, obviously I mentioned I got a wife. I have a 10 month old daughter who, you know, is absolutely beautiful. I swear she's smarter than me and her mom already, which, you know, granted isn't uh, (laughs) that big of a feat, but I mean, 10 months old, she's already walking, you know, she's not talking, but there's certain words she can say and do. And it's just been amazing to, to be able to be, to have that journey of life. We got another one on the way. Um, you know, there's still a lot of stuff that I don't know or fully understand that's going to happen in my life. And, you know, but that's some of the most beautiful things that can actually happen. It used to be a thing of try to control my life in every single aspect. So I would get what I want, but when I can sit back and I can say, you know, everything that I think I want, you know, yeah, I'll kind of, so my experience has been, you know, I tend to think that, you know, this has to happen. This has to look this way, you know, in, in order for things to be all right. And when something happens that I don't want, I say, this is terrible. This is horrible. This is not what I want, you know, and what ends up happening is something better comes even from it. You know, something bad happens. and I say, oh, man, I'm fucked. Everything sucks. You know, give it some time. Stay in the path. Something good happens. You know, and so I'll kind of end with this. This is one that I heard uh, not too long ago, and I just kind of fell in love with this quote. But one of the things, um, and so like I said, I don't do anything perfect, and it's it's hard to live this path, but we do the best we can. But Dr. Bob said, um, Dr. Bob said, we carry this message everywhere we go, and on occasion we may even have to open our mouth to do it. You know, I just look at that and I think that's beautiful. This is, you know, not so much. I mean, I'm so grateful to be able to come out here and do this and actually be able to share, to be able to help. But, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, the most help that we can be and we can do is just how we live our life. And, you know, sometimes we fail and... I think failing is just as important as our successes, you know, and what this program teaches us is to live with grace and have the grace to be able to fail, to act like an asshole and to set things right and really just to do the best that we can. 
and actually truly relish and live the experience. Good or bad doesn't matter. It's about the experience. But, yeah, I think I'm done. You know, uh, Chris, that was an awesome, awesome share. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate you coming and spending this time with us today. You know, you spoke some of of Al-Anon. And I'd love to to know how your Al-Anon experience today uh, shows as an example as to, you know, some others who are listening, uh, how can they benefit from that? How can a person who's got a drug addict in their life really try to still live a happy life? Well, they kind of... You know, I think suffer pretty much from the same stuff. I think one of the main differences is um, the alcoholics, the addicts, they suffer from delusion, where I think the Al-Anon side, they suffer from denial. You know, the alcoholics and the addicts, you know, they're just so out there, they don't think there's a problem or other people are the problem. Yeah. And, um, you know, where the Al-Anon side of it is more of, there's the denial of the problem. Let's not look at the problem. You know, or I'm just going to, you know, try to help them and force them, you know, to be in the place where they need to be. And, you know, it's the same level. It's the same stuff of powerlessness. Um, it's just you're substituting a human being for a drug. drug. Yeah. Sean, I'm glad that you're here when, when Chris tells the story. Any questions that may come to your mind. So thank you, Chris, for being here to share your story. Uh, I have a couple questions. So, you know, one of the things we're taught, you know, being early in recovery is, you know, when you're coming out of treatment or if you're just coming into the program, one of the things you're going to have to do is change people, places, and things. And I thought it was um, remarkable that, you know, with you coming out of recovery and having your fiance who was still trapped in addiction um, and you guys made it through that, what advice would you give to someone in a similar situation where one partner is clean and the other one's still struggling? Great question. So, um, you know, and people who are in that situation, they tend to seek me out. And, um, you know, first of all, I'll be the first one to admit that it's an insane situation to be in. I'll be the first one to admit it, and I'll even tell them, you know, because you do hear a lot about, you know, there's no way, there's no way, and, you know, obviously I think there is a way. It's not likely, and at the same time, I always say, you know, you're signing up to be in a world of pain that you don't even know you're going to be in. Uh, but, I mean, at the same time, you know, I, I think the difference is, you know, being safe and protected. I think the other thing is, you know, but the truth is the people, you have a spiritual experience, you have a psychic change. You know, when this and one of the things is before she finally actually got sober, there was this piece where we were completely grown apart from each other. You know, and I was absolutely painfully aware of it. I didn't want to admit to it. I was in the denial of that, you know, and it really was a thing of, you know, I was getting to a place of how can this relationship 
continue on and literally was done with it. And, and I think one of the things is, you know, if you grow spiritually and another person's not, you know, you're just going to grow apart and, you know, and so what you tend to actually see is two different circumstances with this people who are newly sober and, you know, they're just holding on to that. And it's like that belief that I'm not going to be all right unless she's all right. And this relationship's all right. All right. And I think the difference was, is I got free of that. And that's why I started to grow away from it. And the other is it can be people who are sober for a while. One person relapses, you know, the other one doesn't. And then, you know, but the other thing, look at that is what I was taught and what I've been able to see through all these different people's experiences and my own experiences Spiritually fit people do not relapse. Spiritually fit people do not cheat on their wives. Spiritually fit people do not kill themselves. You know, and, and I bring that up because, you know, usually in those situations, there's some spiritual unfitness that's going on in the first place. Um, and that doesn't mean both partners or anything like that. And, you know, in order to, I think, be and actually have a healthy relationship, you know, people need to be growing or at least kind of in the same spot. And, you know, so it's definitely troublesome and you'll see relationships end because of stuff like that. And, you know, by no means am I going to throw stones and say one way is right or one way is wrong, you know, kind of is what it is. But I mean, yeah, just be prepared for some pain. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the, the big, the bigger book, uh, the Bible, tells us that uh, uh, unequal yoke, you know, will tend to destroy uh, a, a relationship. Um, but what's also true is that the Bible is not taking into consideration the possibility of you inviting God into even that, even into your relationships, you know. When we, as men especially, uh, look at our lives, we might pray that God allows us to make enough money, that God provides a roof over our head, you know. But very seldom do I ever hear a man pray that his wife becomes spiritually awake, that she too be blessed as he has. You know, I this is my own experience. Today, when I pray, I pray for a new experience with God, a new experience with the big book, a new experience even today with my sponsor and sponsees, you know, because nothing is stagnant. Nothing stays the same. We're all growing, especially if you're in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous or any other 12-step program. Ultimately, we want to grow in the spiritual way and uh what happens is that God starts to put people in our lives to allow that. Even if we can't see in the moment that, wow, this is really painful, man. This cannot yield anything good. God can even use that to the good. And knowing your wife, as I do, I can see that she is has become an ultimate sample and an example as to how this program can change people can change relationships, can rebuild families. Chris, thank you again. Sean, anything else for Chris? I did have one last question, and I think you you both kind of touched on it a little bit, but 
Um, you've both talked a lot about the spiritual malady and kind of the remedy for that. But for those who are either new to the program or, um, you know, not in the program, kind of what is the spiritual malady and what is the, what is the ultimate cure for being uh, spiritually fit? And either of you can answer. You can take a turn. So when, when you look at this, all right, so spiritual malady, malady means disease, sickness, any way you want to look at this. And this is probably going to be kind of an out there answer. Um, but when you look at this, spirit can't be sick. Um, and, the, and the reason why I say that, all right, it's the manifestation of Sickness. So, and this is where we're going to get a little bit out there. <coughs> Excuse me. So there's been times, and I've kind of talked to a bunch of people about this before, and I absolutely love it. But um, there's times where we can literally, there's something watching our ego work. Um, you know, I've heard people call it the watcher, the observer. And what ends up happening is, we literally get to watch our ego just attached to something, you know, something so and so. How how they how do they get off saying that? Who do they think they are? You know, and, and there's almost just this piece that's just watching this happen. And you know, when, when we start to have experiences like that, you know, so there's kind of different parts of the mind. There's the thinking rational part. So I'm gonna do this math problem. Oh. Uh, what's that going on behind me, stuff like that. Then there's kind of the ego that's going to attach. And, you know, that's a completely different feeling that happens. Then there becomes, you know, another piece of the mind that kind of watches this happen. And personally, and this is opinion. Yeah, let me state this as opinion, <laughs> first of all. Um, you know, that other piece that's watching that, that's, I think that's kind of the true authentic self. I think you're supposed to have the other parts of the mind. But that part is spirit. And from what I've seen is, you know, spirit is not going to hurt someone. Spirit's incapable of it. You know, when you sit there and you do uh, inventory and you look at the things that, you know, it's always the ego or the big book talks about, you know, stage characters. There's always a stage character attached that's causing harm in one way or another. And so that doesn't say, oh, we didn't do it because we absolutely did it's just that other part. And so I think when these other parts of the mind, you know, really get sickened with self-centeredness and stuff like that, that's the actual spiritual malady, if that makes sense. Hmm. Hmm. I like that. I like that. Um, you know, coming through for me, um, the way that it was delivered to me was that, you know, I, I allowed myself to, to adapt different ways of thinking while I was drinking and using. These different adaptations, if you will, allowed me to tolerate certain behavior, tolerate certain people in my, in, in my, uh, in, in my orbit, right? But what that did, it made me less sensitive to, to others, it gave me a callus, so to speak. Whereas if you were in pain, that was your business. Don't come over here with your pain. You know what I mean? That was your business. I have no room for that. That, to me, speaks to the spiritual malady in myself. Because if I wasn't born that way. I was born a loving human being, right? Infused, if you will, with the spirit of God. 
at some point, and this is where the second step for me becomes very poignant, at some point, I deviated from that that journey that God had already already ordained for me. God had already spoken into my life, and I got off that path. I went into the woods, and in the woods I found alcohol, co- cocaine, and all the other illicit things that I did. You know, I, I found it easy to have sex with women that I didn't know. I found it easy, actually, to, to encourage others to do the same. Now, having had that experience, I believe that the God that I don't understand has transformed that experience, even that experience, into something spiritual. Because now I have been returned to the path that God had in, in mind from the, from the beginning. In the, in the book, it calls it return to sanity. That sanity now allows me to care about you, care about me, care about being this, this agent of God. You know, there was no room for those feelings and, and thoughts. There was no room because it blocked my ability to continue that cycle of behavior. It stopped. It, it gave me some, some, some uh, uh, pause. Man, maybe should, I, I, I shouldn't have this drink. This is not something that's going to be conducive to my addiction. You know, this kind of thinking where God steps in and says, you know, Troy, this is, this is not going to help you be a better agent of mine. You know, that's not going to be conducive to the, the lifestyle of an addict, you know. So this return to sanity has now allowed me to kind of shave away some of the callus that prevented me from living in the way that God wanted me to live in the first place. All right, thank you. Um, you know, we, we come to the close of the show, and I really want to, again, thank you, Chris. Um, uh, you had a, a, a message that had weight, and uh, I really appreciate that. I, I really appreciate you allowing me to be a witness to your, to your transformation as well. Uh, knowing that uh, gives me additional motivation to work with new guys. Um, knowing that, you know, even in your, the deepest, darkest hole that you were in, that you overcame that and you continue to show up, you continue to sponsor, you continue to work the steps, and you have not given up. And I can see that your faith in this program has grown as well. Let's take a moment um, to, to close. And let's go ahead and thank he who presides over us all. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you very much for tuning in. Clean Dreams will be back. In the next few days, we will continue to build our content. So if you can just log on to cleandreams.org and and pick and choose who would you like to listen to today. Um, And this is all about how free do you want to be. 